Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When my family arrived in Columbus, Ohio in 1998, we joined a newly established but growing Somali community that, at once, sat inside and outside the folds of the city. We built our own community spaces, businesses, and neighborhoods. This was our sliver of Americana. But growing up in the Midwest, particularly after September 11th, patriotism became a collective obsession. The good kids at my elementary school attended Patriot Pride parties, where the walls of the gymnasium would be decorated with red, white, and blue. Every morning after he filed into class, a woman's voice would float out of the intercom. She'd instruct us to stand and put our right hand over our heart and a smile on our face to greet the American flag in the corner of each classroom. She led us in the Pledge of Allegiance, and then this song, My Country Tis of Thee. Even then, as a kid, I was always struck by the line in that song, which praised the U.S. as the land where my fathers died. I was well aware that my father had come with me to the United States, that none of my fathers or their fathers had died on this land. Singing that line, land where my fathers died, always felt like participating in someone else's ritual, like wearing someone else's clothes head to toe and being asked to walk around in the world. It was my first time realizing that, like all stories, histories are written by some men for others to accept. Still others will always find it false, as it was never meant for them. I'm still stuck on this question. Who writes the story of the nation? And is there anything lost in the retelling? Today we're making sense of nations lost and found. We're talking to people who, similarly, found themselves on the outsides of the worlds in which they lived. So they set out to search for other places that might fit them a little bit better. Welcome back to On Things We Left Behind, a podcast with me, Surer, and my sister, Serado. Today's episode, The Space Between Stories. We're speaking with Maryam Amini and Abira Hussain to explore how the past shapes the present and vice versa. My name is Maryam Amini. I am a journalist and historian. Uh, I was born in Afghanistan during the Afghan Civil War in the early 1990s. Maryam Amini spent her early years in Afghanistan, but then moved to the United States. Her family became refugees during the Afghan Civil War. 
a lot of the memories that I know are like shared nostalgic memories of what, like what my parents know and what I've like grown up listening. Miriam's early memories of Afghanistan are exactly what a child would remember. Her favorite food carts where she would get fries with spicy chutney, trips with her grandfather, and her uncle bringing her along to fill thermoses with ice cream for the family. When we came here in the early 2000s, I had just started school when 9-11 occurred. And very quickly, I realized that I had to be... I had to be knowledgeable. <laughs> I had to be knowledgeable of what was happening because often I was the only Afghan a lot of people met. And that's a lot of pressure. I think that's a lot of pressure. Miriam remembers this pressure well. In the fifth grade, her class gave presentations on countries around the world. Miriam decided to present on Afghanistan. So there was like the Italian group, there was the Mexican group, um, there was like German group, so it was like an, uh, ancestry week type of thing. And I was by myself. I talked about, you know, Afghan food and then Afghan music, and then I just skipped the history. Miriam thought she excelled, but her grade proved otherwise. So I was a fifth grader and I was just kind of heartbroken that, you know, the subject that I loved so much, you know, I didn't get the grade I wanted it. Let's rewind for a second. Miriam was the new kid at school. She was working through ESL, English as a Second Language classes, and she had gained just enough English to work with her classmates. While she was young, she knew the war on terror was shaping her classmates' ideas of Afghanistan before she ever even opened her mouth. So she came up with what felt like an elegant solution. Just skip the history. I failed. Like, I th- in my mind, I thought that meant, you know, that I had, hadn't done a good job. Uh, and I remember coming home just like, as soon as I entered, you know, our living room, I just started crying. It was a call from her grandfather that made her see things differently. I remember that day my grandfather uh, had called us from abroad. And this is when we had like uh, to do international calls. You had like the phone cards where you had like scratch off and, you know, put the number and then you would be able to make a international call. So as I was about to speak with my grandfather, he's, you know, he asked, he's like, so, you know, but she, like, you know, my child, how are you doing? And then I just started crying again. The same story, like I had a presentation in Afghanistan and I did this and I just skipped the history. And I remember like the phone call ended and like my grandfather called again. He's like, no, 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 we have to talk about this. What do you mean you skipped the history? Miriam didn't have the tools at the time to explain the history of her people. She didn't know enough. And on top of that, she felt like she was being judged. Her grandfather taught her a critical lesson. He was like, you cannot skip parts of your history because you are intimidated or you're ashamed of you know, explaining what is going on, what's ha- what is actually happening in Afghanistan. Miriam's grandfather took matters into his own hands. For hours, she stood by the corded telephone with a notebook and he gave her an oral history of Afghanistan. My grandfather just started listing Afghan history, like that there were these, you know, empires, and there were these rulers, and there were these poets, and there was these cultures. They spoke for so long, the calling card ran out, and they had to call back to continue her lesson. She was listening to him in Farsi and taking down notes in English. Afghan history goes back thousands of years. You know, Afghan history that I have learned, a lot of it is oral history, and unfortunately... The majority of this past history is sometimes, if lucky, reduced to a paragraph in a history book. 
A lot of histories that I didn't know at the time as a fifth grader, as a refugee, as an immigrant studying the United States, a lot of my history was not part of the curriculum. Um, and for my grandfather to give me a summary uh, from thousands of miles away, it kind of not only boosted my confidence, but it also taught me a very important lesson that regardless of what um, is happening in Afghanistan, I will never um, look away from it because it is tragic history. Miriam realized that history was a secret weapon. She needed to know herself to know how to engage with the world. It's a lesson Miriam carries with her to this day. Knowing my history, knowing the history of Afghanistan, knowing the history of what I've lived through, I think it's a necessity for, you know, the kind of discussions that I want to contribute in. She went back to her fifth grade teacher and asked to do the presentation again. But this time, just the history bits, the historical sites, architecture, poetry. Miriam is now the founder of an online platform called Afghan Historian, where she tries to share the lesson that her grandfather taught her with others. I started the Afghan Historian uh, Twitter account um, when I was looking for a community of you know, Afghan scholars and historians and students of Afghan history uh, to just you know, have to kind of contextualize current Afghan affairs and put a historical perspective. Running to history for answers about your identity is complicated, particularly in the aftermath of war. In places like Afghanistan and Somalia, history can be challenging. What if it's not what you imagined? What if it hurts? What if it's not there? And the boundaries between personal memory and collective history is not as clear as you might think. In the aftermath of war, history is made up by our lives, our memories, our stories patched together. We shape what is remembered and what is known and what is left to be forgotten. Abida Hussein does the hard work of curating history. She's a researcher that curates Somali archives in British museum collections. So the work that I do, uh, I've often described as a kind of a love letter to my home, as a way of connecting to a place that I don't know. Abida patches together collective histories from the ordinary items that people have kept from before the Somali Civil War. It's an archive that people can use to orient themselves and understand who they are. This work can be deeply personal. So there was this photograph that I had of my mum, a studio photo that was taken in um, in the late 1970s in Mogadishu. And it was a really beautiful photograph. My mum wasn't wearing a scarf then. She had like the whole afro. She hates that I show it, but it's such a, a beautiful photo. And so I started off with that, actually, um, and thinking, well, what representation does exist in our homes? And I was particularly interested in the studio photographs because it was, I think, kind of, it was a way of representing ourselves. We had agency. We decided how we looked. Um... And I just felt in that sense that we were kind of truly within ourselves. Some people say, well, actually, I don't have any photographs. Whatever I had, I lost. Some of them actually lost that during the war completely. When physical objects and even entire landmarks are missing, it can be difficult to piece together a vision of how things once were. That can be challenging for those of us who grew up after the destruction began. So there was a physical destruction and there was a destruction that happened when people dispersed. And I guess, and that continuous destruction means that sometimes it's quite hard 
to know what it is to be Somali. The brokenness and partiality of people's memory can make this even worse. Some things are lost because people couldn't carry them. And some things are lost because people wanted to leave them in the past. When things are lost, when there are no memories anymore of a place, things are destroyed, all you can do is imagine. And that can be a powerful tool, but also it can be quite a negative tool as well. And so sometimes archives can be, could help you to imagine. It can be a form of evidence. For us, memory making is so important. And is there a space within Smile that people can actually can connect to say, well, this is our past. This is a representation of it. For those of us who grew up after war, much of what we understand about our parents' worlds comes from their stories. We animate these stories with our own imagination, giving them life and color. There's a poet, Ladan Osman, that said that, um, that was talking about uh, her experiences, and she mentioned the idea of only having secondhand memories of home that are told to you through your parents or photographs. Yeah, this is a, a place that I've never seen, that I don't quite know if I go there, if it will be everything that I, I expected. Will I find this understanding of myself? I don't quite feel like I'm complete until I can actually kind of, you know, place my feet on Somali soil. These stories of the past bubble up in intimate moments and informal settings. Narrations are traded across the kitchen table in jokes and in passing. They can often be colored in a hint of nostalgia. Nostalgia is, I think it could be positive, but I think it could be quite negative. I think the, the past was important, but I'm not sure if we fully reckoned with the past. Sometimes I think maybe nostalgia kind of flattens things and it doesn't offer realistic representation of what it is to be Somali and the ugly parts, I guess, as well as the good parts, whether they're acknowledged just as much. I do feel like sometimes there's a bit of stagnation. It, sometimes it felt like we were kind of frozen in a particular time period and there was just no movement on either side. Others completely reject relationships with the past. They refuse to hold on to anything too tightly. They don't want to be reminded that there was a before, because then they have to reckon with the after. An aunt of mine interrupts any long recollection with hasuswaye, or it's just a memory. It seems like she's questioning the whole idea. What's the point of this remembering? What does it do for us? What do we gain from it? And at what cost do we keep the memory alive? The hard work of memory, for Avira, is in its excavation. She's a scientist by training, so she uses that framing to understand healing. War makes wounds. Initially, when you have a, a trauma, you have the kind of the blood clotting, the body just kind of initially deals with it by quickly just putting something in place to stop the blood flow. And then you have the inflammation stage where you kind of have to, it's quite painful, you have to dig up the debris and, and the kind of the dead material in order for you to then, and for, for me, the archival work and this kind of going back into the past was about trying to deal with that painful, that painful past and trying to dig that out to be able to kind of look at it, to be able to understand it, come to terms with it. And then we can then think about, which is the next stage of healing, is growth and then maturation and remodeling. So unless we've done the painful work, you can't build on top of that, because I just think it's still a toxic environment. Anything that you try to put on top just continuously stays in this kind of pit. So I think part of it was trying to kind of dig that, dig that part out. So I think in our journey, I, I don't, I'm not sure we've actually done the, done the kind of painful work yet. Healing is a balancing act. It's about negotiating a middle space between memorializing your past 
and rejecting it completely. We can't move forward, really. I think if you know, if you don't remember, you know, if you don't remember the past, and I think you don't know where you're going. If you don't know where you've been, then you don't know where you're going. So I think, in a way, you're just kind of blindly trying to find a path. To know oneself is to know one's past. It is to know the messy bits, the parts omitted, and the parts concealed. It's a collective remembering, as much as it is an individual one. That soft power of history is something that one can wield, or one can have enacted upon them. Either way, it's something to know. It is worth its pursuit. The child of a refugee that has left everything behind, their connection to their cultural background is through their mother tongue, which they cannot speak. Trauma exists for the one who remembers the strayed bullets. To come to a land where building a new home feels like digging concrete with your bare hands. The archive is their connection to history, a place where their community can rehabilitate, a place they can call home. Thanks for listening to another episode of On Things We Left Behind with me, Surer, and my sister, Sarada. This series was produced by Lucy Hunt for Listen Entertainment and is the winner of the LaunchPod 2019 competition with Listen Entertainment and Acast. On the next episode, The Architect, we're speaking to our mom, Shukri, who we call Hoya, about reclaiming the city of her youth. I got a call on a Sunday. They just said, Maktisho is burning. Somalia is burning. The city's in ashes. Still, it was like a surreal dream that I still haven't woken up from. And that's the day that our entire world's turned upside down. For more episodes, find us on Acast or wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.